I'm Melanie Sayward and you are tuning in to The Pink Elephant. Hi there and welcome to Season 3 of The Pink Elephant Podcast. I'm really excited about this first episode but I must warn you that this topic is not going to sound particularly uplifting, not, not at least in the beginning. As we get deeper into it, though, I promise you'll notice the incredible freedom available to us because of this topic that Paul talked about so frequently. I'm talking about weakness. Weakness is a topic that we generally don't talk about, nor do we commonly hear it preached. I, for one, have never in my life heard a message on this subject. In preparation for this episode, I consulted a book called Paul, Apostle of Weakness by David Allen Black. So I highly recommend getting this text if you want to get a bit more deeper into this subject. Over the last year, I have been thinking a lot about weakness. And yes, it has been inspired by different events, I guess, and circumstances that I found myself in in 2022. In particular, 2 Corinthians 12 verses 7 to 10, where Paul discusses the thorn in his flesh. I've read that passage so many times and found myself so curious about what Paul is really saying because, you know, this passage doesn't actually make much sense. I'm going to read it out for you, right? So 2 Corinthians 12, starting from verse 7, and it's the second part of that verse. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It's quite shocking, isn't it? So what is weakness? The word that Paul uses that is translated as weakness in the English Bible is asthenia, which I'm probably not saying right. It's a word that he uses 44 times in the Pauline letters. We might remember this passage the most, but it is a fairly prominent word in his writings. From the 44 occasions in which he uses asthenia, we get some idea of how he understood and intended to use the word. The word itself has been used in other Greek texts, particularly those written around that same kind of time. And if we consider how Paul used the word and those Greek texts use the word, the meaning of asthenia seems to mean powerlessness. The context of the word is broad, so it could cover a multitude of situations. However, most scholars believe that when Paul spoke of a thorn in his flesh, he was referring to some kind of physical ailment. But the vagueness of this thorn in this passage certainly works in our favour because we are able to insert our own thorns, whatever that may be, and certainly the context that is shown through Greek texts and Paul's writings allows us to do so. This thorn was his asthenia. It's what made him feel weak or at least be perceived as weak. Paul didn't initially perceive this thorn to be a good thing. It was unwanted. And certainly when Plato used the word asthenia in his own writings, it had a negative implication. It was something to be avoided. So what exactly does powerless mean? 
In Paul's life, the thorn is the precise matter for which he experiences powerlessness. It made him weak. It tormented him. He pleads with God that it would be removed. It's obvious that it was some kind of barrier to his life and ministry that was outside of his realm of ability to change, despite his best efforts. Now, it's really important here to state that he wasn't talking about a power imbalance and the fact that his powerlessness in this situation originated in an authority figure above him, sort of wielding power and abuse, right? So please do not look at this as some kind of confirmation of abusive situations. We aren't talking about that kind of powerlessness. However, trauma does tend to make us extremely uncomfortable with weakness and powerlessness is a scary thing to contemplate. A couple of years back, I was part of a spiritual formation group through college and I remember telling my story, trauma and all, and just being so unemotional and matter-of-fact about it. We moved on to the other people in the group, but the next day we had like one last person left to share. And this person hadn't been through the kind of trauma I had, but they were so vulnerable about their experiences and their circumstances. You could feel their pain and emotion and it was very moving. It suddenly dawned on me that despite being a really transparent person, I was actually not very vulnerable. I shared my story as though I was a victor, as a testimony. I wasn't vulnerable about the parts of me that were still so oppressed by my trauma. Ironically, my need to be perceived as triumphant and having it together was probably evidence of my trauma. For the rest of that year and certainly through the ongoing spiritual formation journey in that group, I started to delve into my own struggles with vulnerability. I realised that I had been putting up a front to everyone, especially myself. I had purposely projected strength because the truth is that most of the time I didn't feel very strong at all and definitely I was afraid to be vulnerable. I had actually assumed that all vulnerability was bad because the last time I felt that weak, I lost some of my innocence. I would say that was the door that really started my journey toward what this is today, all the books, the podcasts. It's what makes me capable of facing the pink elephants with courage because the hard stuff leads to a greater breakthrough than all the toxic positivity in this world. I have that person to thank for being so open and vulnerable about their challenges. So powerlessness are those things in your life that you wish you could change, but despite every attempt, you can't seem to fix it. It could be a character trait or a personality trait. It could be a physical ailment or even just your physical appearance or other physical attributes. It could be trauma and the consequential shame and fear and depression that it's caused. It could be your IQ and your intelligence. Whatever it may be, despite your best efforts to change it, it still persists. And the likelihood is that you've had to accept it unwillingly and compensate for it and maybe even hide it. Now, because I know that actually there's not as many vulnerable people out there as we would like to believe, I'm going to have to say this too, right? There are probably some of you listening to this right now and you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about, Mel. I don't have anything like that. Well, don't let yourself off the hook so easily. There's a good chance that you've suffocated that thing so deeply that you just aren't consciously aware of it. And I'll give you an example. By nature, I am a disorganized scatterbrain. 
I can be extremely focused and I'm definitely a good planner, especially when it comes to projects. But I learnt all of that. By nature, I am a disorganised scatterbrain, especially if I have to juggle lots of responsibility. When I used to go over to my auntie's house as a kid, nine times out of ten, I would forget to take home with me whatever new toy I had gotten. My auntie ended up calling me Forgetful Jones. I don't know if you remember that character from Sesame Street. You can Google it if you want. The name actually stuck for quite a while and I guess I must have felt a little bit ashamed about it at times. But when I got older, I started to hear things that I really didn't like hearing about myself. I started to hear people say occasionally things like, oh, you're unreliable. And I really didn't like the sound of that because I really do care about people. Meanwhile, the list of things I wanted to do with my life grew. I was recording music in studios at the time and coordinating a fair amount of people and I wanted to do more of that. So as the stakes got higher in terms of what I was involved in and what I wanted to achieve, I knew I had to do something about my general tendency toward disorganisation and scatterbrainness because let's face it, if I was really unreliable like people were telling me, I was not going to be able to have the trust of those who I was going to lead and and do all of that sort of stuff with, right? So when I got to university, I dusted off an old book that my dad had on the shelf called The Ten Natural Laws of Time and Life Management by Hiram Smith. And I absolutely studied that book. I highlighted it. I posted noted it. I had summaries of each chapter. Within just a few months, I had completely turned around my whole life as well as lifting my entire grade at university. I wasn't stressed, I was reliable, and eventually more people trusted me, especially when it came to leadership, when I eventually started getting involved in that. Since then, time management and life management has become a passion of mine. I've read copious numbers of books about it, I've taught people how to be more organised, It's become so ingrained in my way of life that nobody would actually ever consider me disorganised. Now, those same friends that thought I was unreliable refer to me as organised now. Yeah, it's nice to know that people can completely forget your past eventually, right? But again, the truth is I know deep down that I'm still that disorganised mess. Under all the good systems that compensate for my nature, I'm just another scatterbrain. The point of this story is just because you have successfully managed your weaknesses doesn't mean they aren't still there. So don't be tempted right now to take the position of pride and pretend that there aren't things about yourself that you absolutely wish you could fundamentally change. I still wish I could change that trait because I know it only takes a day without looking at my to-do list to have the truth unravel. I still have to maintain a system to be this way. Now, disorganisation is probably not the worst of traits to dislike in oneself. There are certainly far worse, far more detrimental traits to our self-esteem and mental health. They chase us all day subconsciously. What are yours? Do you know? So far, I've only talked about the internal things that we feel powerless against. There are external things too. COVID is an example of an external factor that many of us felt powerless against. It was and is a circumstance that befell our society that demanded changes in living circumstances and many other severe factors that we didn't have to contend with prior to COVID. Now, I don't need to tell you what actions our society took to try and handle this overwhelming feeling of powerlessness, but I will. Yes, there were vaccines. Yes, there was anger. 
there was resentment, there was violence, there was suicide and there was control. These reactions may not have been nice, but it's why I try not to judge any person or entity because most of society were just reacting to a very unfamiliar feeling, powerlessness. Powerlessness is not a situation that we desire, nor are we comfortable with, whether external or internal. Who wants to be powerless, I ask you? Who would want to be weak? Powerlessness brings out the worst in us. So how remarkable is it then that Paul not only recognised his powerlessness or his weakness, but he also rejoiced in it? We can only assume that he had some epic revelation that Christ revealed some mind-blowing truth that reversed his entire mindset about what it means to be weak and powerless. What would take a man from pleading with God to remove his thorn to boasting in it? Well, let's keep going deeper. See, the context of 2 Corinthians is really critical to understanding why Paul would even need to discuss a topic like this. He wasn't just writing a private journal entry to work through his issues. He had a purpose. This letter would be read out to the church of Corinth. From the book of Corinthians, we can deduce that the church had some false apostles, or as Paul sarcastically calls them, the super apostles. These super apostles had almost successfully discredited Paul in the eyes of the people. And so Paul is having to make an appeal to the church of Corinth. He's having to defend his apostolic authority and prove his calling as an apostle. Now, the irony of this situation is just incredible. This is a church that he began and now he is having to answer to them. Many leaders today would be too entitled to bother with such a preposterous situation, but Paul is more concerned to stop the Corinthian church of being led astray by the super apostles, espousing an incorrect gospel, which he talks about in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 4. The super apostles' complaints were that Paul was lackluster in his oratory skills and they referred to some observable weaknesses, things that they could see about him, which is where we don't know exactly what that is, concluding, though, that he was not worthy to be listened to. The weakness may have been the physical ailment he refers to as his thorn. We can't be sure. But certainly an apostle who is able to heal but is crippled with his own life-threatening condition could have had some effect on his credibility. On the other hand, the apostles based their superiority over Paul and authority as apostles on at least two factors, according to 2 Corinthians, on dreams and visions, so I guess you could say their prophetic or spiritual gift, and their eloquence in speech. Eloquence in speech was highly regarded during that time, especially outside of the church. Great orators were respected and they were listened to. They were influential, they had credibility, and ultimately they were trusted. You could argue that this is still the case today, particularly in the church. We often elevate good speakers over good character. Now, Paul has a response to the matter of oratory skills. He claims that he deliberately came to them without eloquence in the previous letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2 verse 1. But how does Paul respond to the statements about weakness? Instead of defending himself and trying to demonstrate how strong he was, Paul accepts their slander. Yes, he almost agrees with them. Why? Why would Paul do this? Surely this can't be true. After all, wouldn't this mean he was actually admitting that they were superior? 
This is the person we would consider one of the most influential people in the history of the church, besides Jesus maybe, right? Well, definitely Jesus, but you know what I'm trying to say. And here he is almost accepting defeat. He does this because he notices something. If he were to defend himself and call himself strong and present all of the reasons that demonstrate his strength, he would still be proving himself according to their standard and their criterion. Why would the super apostles criterion matter when trying to establish whether someone has the very presence of the Holy Spirit in their life? God knows it's not going to look as the world would think it should. And truth be told, sometimes the presence of the Holy Spirit doesn't even look as Christians think it would. Paul doesn't need to defend himself against their criterion. If he did, he would actually prove himself to be worldly and not apostolic at all. And herein lies the first pink elephant that demonstrates our need to go deeper. Our desire to prove ourselves, to project some kind of message about who we are, has more alignment with the super apostles' way of thinking than Paul's. And I can tell you, most of us are trying to do that. In the church, we're often trying to prove how good we are, how right we are, how spiritually attuned we are, how self-controlled we are, how joyful and happy we are, how discerning we are, how much we've got it together. We think this makes us look strong, holy or morally good. But all of it stems from the exact same place, a desire to authenticate ourselves according to man's criterion. It's not God that asks us to be that way. God doesn't care what people say of us, whether they think we are good or not, because it doesn't matter what others think of us. He just wants us to live with a life dedicated to him, which most often than not happens in the secret place. It only matters what he thinks of us. Worse yet, according to this passage, these things we do, believing it will validate us before men, are often exactly what stands in the way of God's strength. Paul rejoiced in his weakness because he knew it demonstrated more about God than it did about him. His weaknesses were not a barrier to God. Conceitedness was. His weaknesses were a conduit for the Holy Spirit, not an inhibitor. But the desire to be self-made and societally strong, now that is an inhibitor. That's what this passage is saying. Now, if we really believed this, if we really got this, Why would we all be striving so hard? Why do we need to be seen as strong? Why is weakness something we run from? Why is charisma so important in ministry circles? Why are we so judgmental of others? Why would we not see that that might be actually real hope in their weakness? Yes, because the truth is we don't generally believe this and we generally have a worldly definition of strength. See, the super apostles were posing a question, a question that we often get preoccupied with, but it's the wrong question for this situation. The super apostles were asking Paul, what validates you? What validates your authority? What makes you worthwhile? Why should we give you space, influence and time? Because of insecurity, we often get caught up answering this question too. We try to project something about ourselves and it's definitely not for God's sake, it's for others. 
we say, well, because I'm reliable or because I know how to speak to people or because I'm smart, because I can fix anything, because I'm a good teacher or a speaker, well, because I have visions and prophetic dreams. That was the game the super apostles got caught up in. But instead of Paul answering their question, Paul answers another question that they didn't ask but should have. He answers this, where does my strength come from? The real proof of Paul's apostolic authority was not in performing various spiritual acts, although he did those too. It wasn't in using literary devices and emotional manipulation through words and the oratory gift. Paul's proof was that he could suffer for Christ without reward. Not many had higher thoughts of Paul because of how he suffered. Not when others had distracted the people into believing this vouched poorly for his apostolic rightness. He got virtually no personal reward for his suffering. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 1 verse 8, implying that others looked upon Paul's suffering as shameful and embarrassing. Paul suffered time and again for the gospel, and though he certainly faced depression and times of mourning, he kept on getting up and being faithful, knowing full well that there may not be a single personal benefit for his sacrifice except for the one that he would get in heaven. Where does your strength come from? How much do you rely on God really? Can you endure every hardship without need for some personal benefit at the end of it, just simply to know that Christ was in it? I can't. At the end of 2022, I was praying, Jesus, make 2023 a good one. I still wanted comfort, despite knowing full well the testimony of God's goodness in every hardship I had in 2022, despite knowing that his power rested on me with a greater weight than any moment of self-sufficiency I have had. Well, let's go deeper again. Why? Why does Paul's weakness demonstrate his apostolic authority? Why does Paul's weaknesses demonstrate God's strength? Well, quite frankly, an apostle is chosen by God, which means that the evidence of apostolic authority is God's power working through him. But that was precisely what the super apostles were trying to say. They were trying to suggest that they operated under a greater anointing than him, right? The reason Paul sees his weakness as a demonstration of his apostolic authority is because his apostolic authority doesn't even prove his own strength. It proves God's strength. Is that not what all of our lives really are? Are not our lives an opportunity to demonstrate Christ? There are plenty of people out there who can prove the significance of human strength. They've endured horrible things and they've been resilient and have actually done a lot of it without God. But what hope does that give this world? The underlying message is that you've got to be someone special to do that. I would rather the message that Paul has for us here, that if I lay it down and though I be a fool, I don't have to be strong anymore. I don't have to worry about thorns. I can rely on Christ's strength to get me through and simultaneously demonstrate his goodness and strength. I don't have to prove anything. Where does your strength come from? See, another pink elephant in the Christian world is that we fail to define the level of power we are meant to have. We mistakenly look at this through the lens of either false humility or authority. And there are risks with both. They aren't an accurate representation regarding how we relate to God in our world. I want you to imagine for a moment a scale from zero to ten. We'll call this the power scale. 
on the left-hand side of the scale is complete powerlessness or zero power. On the right-hand side of the scale is all-powerful. I'm going to ask you a series of questions and I want you to mentally note where, you know, approximately that lands on the scale. When it comes to your ability to buy a house, where on the scale would you place yourself? Do you have all the power to do that? Or are you powerless or somewhere in between? When it comes to fixing issues in your marriage, where would you place yourself with regard to the level of power you have? If you wanted to progress into another job role in your workplace, where would you place it? If you wanted to earn more money, where would you place your level of power on that scale when it comes to that? If you wanted to find a partner, how about if you wanted to go overseas? If you wanted to live till you're like 80 or 90 years old, what about retirement? If you wanted to retire next year, what about having a baby? Now, I could continue, but I think you get the point, right? If you find yourself on the left end of the scale, for the most part, there is a good chance that you perceive yourself as a victim in most circumstances, which means you see yourself as mostly powerless. Life is happening to you. You have very few choices. On the other hand, if you marked most of your responses in the nine and tens kind of area of the scale, you're probably overestimating the level of control you have in your life. And I would say that your perception of your wealth also influences how often you mark on the higher scale versus the lower scale. See, the fact is we are probably somewhere in the middle for most things. Take, for instance, buying a house, right? The first one that I mentioned. If you wanted to buy a house, you probably could put some money away every week. And as long as you didn't touch it, you could probably eventually buy a house. Yes, the type of house would be impacted by what you can save and wear and all that kind of stuff. But you have some power. What you don't have power over, though, is whether a cyclone or a hurricane comes along and destroys your possessions, or whether a pandemic comes along and the income of your company reduces drastically and you consequently lose your job. There is a level of power all of us have. And actually, for the most part, our power is in our faithfulness. The rest of the power is God's. Even Ecclesiastes 9.11 reminds us of an important truth. I have seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favour to the learned. But time and chance happen to them all. If you ever look at your life and think the successes you've had in life is on account of your own wisdom or strength, just remember it's probably opportunity that separated you from the rest. There are definitely people out there who are equally, if not more strong, wise and brilliant out there than you. And plenty of them have worked harder than you too. That's not necessarily what made you special. That's what that verse is saying. Now, I've probably digressed somewhat, but the point is we underestimate what we can do and we overestimate what we can do. Coming to a healthy understanding of power is to recognize what you can do and recognize what only God can do. Now, God has a way of taking us through times that remind us of our humanity and his divinity. But if we truly want to be conduits for Christ's power, we do need to work out the degree of weakness that is normal and the weakness that we invite because of our own tendency toward being a victim, because we are neither completely powerless nor are we completely powerful. Okay, let's go one more level deeper and then we're going to call it a day. Why are we all trying to change ourselves? 
I mean, there's some that aren't, but for the average Christian listening to this, there are things within yourself that you wish were different. Those things you wish were different are what you would probably perceive as your weaknesses. I know what they are for me. I wish I was more consistent. I wish I was more assertive. I wish I didn't overthink as much as I do. I wish I was more confident. I wish I was taller, much, much taller. I wish I could sleep better. And there's a host of things I've done to try and change those things in my life. But why do we try so hard to change ourselves? The things I'm talking about aren't sin. They're just personality traits. So why do we try to change ourselves so much? This bit is going to be hard initially for you to hear. The fact is that we all have a level of self-disdain or, you know, a much less palatable way of saying it is we all have a level of self-hatred. We definitely differ on the level we have, but there are aspects of ourselves that we point the finger of judgment at and most likely shame is the result. We feel ashamed of these parts of ourselves. They embarrass us. Why would we ever change ourselves or adjust or suppress if we loved ourselves? These are behaviours synonymous with self-loathing. Why would we ever over-apologise or the other extreme, which is never apologising if we actually liked ourselves? These are two behaviours of someone who doesn't like what they see in themselves when they inevitably face the vulnerability of fault. I mean, there are so many things in life that we do that are terribly harmful for us. And I'm not even talking about having a little bit of chocolate in the evening, right? What about the stress that we put our bodies and our minds through to be seen as good or to keep up with the Joneses or the money we spend to project an image? We literally do things every day that if it was someone doing it to us, we would probably consider abuse. But we do it to ourselves. We burn ourselves out. We say yes when we should have said no. We say no when we should have said yes. We hold unforgiveness. We get jealous. Studies have shown that this has an effect on our physical health as much as our mental health. Yes, some of it is just sin that we're dealing with, but lots of it is also deliberate. We have social media accounts, even though it makes us depressed. We lie to ourselves. You know, the Bible says a lying tongue hates those it hurts and a flattering mouth works ruin. Proverbs 26, 28, and yet we're often continually lying to ourselves and even flattering ourselves. We tell ourselves our intentions were good and that we're all right and we got it all together. We're not hypocrites or judgmental or whatever else we try to convince ourselves of when we're 100% sinning. We suffocate our tears. We suppress our feelings, even though this has an effect on our stomach health. We're actually so self-punishing in our choices That's the proof that we really don't love ourselves. We might fool ourselves sometimes into believing that we're doing these things as our act of worship, blah, blah, blah. blah. That's just some self-righteous bull right there. We often have this harsh voice in our head that is constantly judging us, condemning us and telling us that we don't measure up. And the only reason we listen to it is because deep down we kind of agree. Sometimes the only reason we are trying so hard to be good is not because of Christ at all. It's because we want to silence that shame that we feel deep inside. It's because we need to know we are good because we don't actually feel good. And whilst I understand how we all get there, the truth is it's not genuine worship. And if you satisfy that niggle, it only leads to self-righteousness. All right, 
I've said a lot of stuff that's quite depressing. So just stay with me, right? This might be really uncomfortable. There's a point coming. See, all of the things we do to change these things we dislike in ourselves, all the striving, the hiding, the falsifying, they're all forms of self-reliance. It's our attempt to control the things we don't like seeing in us. But Paul is setting this incredible example to us because of what he knows in Christ. He accepts the weakness. For us, it would mean recognising, yes, I don't feel good enough. Yes, I don't think I'm smart enough. Yes, I don't think I'm strong enough. But Christ is enough. Only when you know how good Christ is and how good his grace is can you know that he is enough. His power and grace is what we all really need and surely it leads you to healing. The destiny of my life and your life and the will of God in my life and my family's and your life and your family's is not reliant on us meeting some worldly criterion of strength. Even if the Christian world is still so guilty of looking to that framework for defining success, let them have their worldly forms of success. The real strength for us who want to live differently, where our faith is truly nourishing, where we see the fruit of the gospel in our life and in our lifetime, is to demolish the worldly views of strength and lay down all the weapons we have accumulated in that fight. I prove Christ when I lay my desire to control the narrative of who am I down and replace it with a new narrative that permeates through my entire life. The narrative of who is God. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Pink Elephant. You can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, or you can check out my resources on my website, meljsayward.com.